the more alcohol that gets to your brain, in turn starving the brain of glucose, the more adrenaline, or epinephrine, is released. Now, this adrenaline can affect each person differently. Welcome to the Misdiagnosed Podcast, where we uncover the truth about all things mental health, from what's really causing mental illness symptoms to why the industry of psychiatry and big pharma don't seem all that interested in helping people heal. This show will get your hands dirty so you can know the truth and live free. I'm your host, Caitlin Pyle, and I've healed from multiple mental illness symptoms, including bipolar disorder, ADHD, OCD, clinical depression, extreme anxiety, and PTSD. Psychiatrists almost ruined my life, but I live to tell about it, and I'm sharing it all here on this show. Join us as we explore how to spot the lies the mental health industry tries to sell us. All right, it's that time. We are talking about alcohol. This chapter is not for the faint of heart, but we're going to do it anyway because it's necessary. I'll tell you a little bit about my own journey with alcohol. I never really liked alcohol until I was in Germany studying abroad. I had never had, I think I had my first drink at 17 actually in Germany because it's legal at 16 there. I had like a Bacardi Breezer. And somewhere I have the bottle cap from that first drink. And I got pretty wasted, I guess, on Bacardi Breezers and Smirnoff Ice that night. But it was like the knockoff Smirnoff Ice when I was 17. I had the time of my life, but I look back and I'm like, man, if that was my kid, I don't know. Anyway... I didn't like beer or wine, but I drank a lot of Long Island iced tea when I lived in Germany as a college student a couple years later. And I picked up the habit of drinking beer when I got married. And my ex-husband's parents were, I wouldn't say big drinkers, but they were frequent drinkers. And my mother-in-law was famous in our family for saying like, I don't drink a lot, but when I drink, I drink a lot, which is, you know, if you haven't listened to the episode on moderation... (laughs) It's a trap. Uh, go listen to that episode. But um, yeah, I in 2018, right before I got divorced, I had decided that I realized I did not want to keep drinking alcohol because I was using it as some kind of crutch. And the fact that I would think about not drinking for two weeks and that would be daunting for me. I was like, I don't want it to feel that way. I don't think it should feel that way. And so I started to do what I called the no booze experiment for 30 days. And I would Facebook live broadcast my updates from time to time. I probably did five, five updates total over the whole 30 days. And I continued to not drink for quite some time after that. I think I picked up the habit of marijuana, though, in the process because the alcohol was covering up some anxiety and probably the signs, warning signs of burnout at the same time. And so I got into CBD and then I got into actual weed (laughs) and it just kind of snowballed from there. And so if that happened, let's see, July of 2018, I stopped drinking and started using CBD, which then evolved in September quickly to higher doses of marijuana. My ex-husband and I separated the third week of September. And by the second week of October, I had been hospitalized with psychosis for the first time. Didn't get any diagnoses that first time, um, but I continued smoking weed after I got out. Um, 
and end up with psychosis again in December of that same year. I had, I think, another episode in January when I was not smoking weed. Um, but I think that was much more related to like PTSD and like the bipolar symptoms that I developed because of the metals that are often found in these weed products that I was not aware of. I was still in the mindset, oh, heavy metals is just, you know, what conspiracy theorists talk about, you know, (laughs) I did not know what I did not know at all at that time. And yeah, two years after that, I experienced more episodes because I got my marijuana card officially and I felt oh the doctor is prescribing this for my PTSD and anxiety I must need it it must be okay and I got specific strains like just for PTSD and anxiety but still the concentration was too high these products are very strong and there's no amount of overuse that is good and in the last episode where we talked about microdosing I know that a lot of people don't consider cannabis a psychedelic drug but it is mind-altering and it has very similar effects it puts your brain into crisis mode and it's the adrenaline and it can lead to burnout right the more you use it the less you feel like doing like your motivation your dopamine centers like completely gets burnt out and your adrenal glands are burnt out which can contribute to weight gain and whatnot so all of that contributed to like my burnout symptoms and but you, you can't blame just the marijuana because my lifestyle and workaholism and lack of support from my ex-husband, um, all that stuff, plus the divorce itself <laughs> was all very traumatizing. And yeah, there's, it's just a, it's, there's no one single thing that contributes to burnout. It's just when it takes a while to happen, a lot of people don't start seeing the symptoms until they're in their thirties, forties. So it was like right on schedule, right? But the doctors, the psychiatrists were like, yeah, it's common to see bipolar pop up in women when they're in their early 30s. I was 31 at the time and they were trying to convince me that I'd always had bipolar and that it was just laying dormant in my system like it was some kind of virus like HPV or something. And I was like, that is insane. Like this kind of thing, I remember thinking this kind of thing does not happen to me. This kind of thing does not happen to me. Um, and in a way, you can look at that and be like, oh, that's just denial, right? And some people did say that to me. They're like, yeah, you just need to listen to your doctor and take your meds. And, you know, you're in denial and that's normal. And people would say you have to adjust your expectations for your life. You're sick now. And it's just disgusting when I think about it. like, But it's not – I don't think about it and, like, shun those people. They don't know what they don't know either. And I – don't fault them for that. I am just grateful that I stuck with my own guns. And yeah, it took me a while. I had some relapses where I was like, this is bullshit, you know, but sometimes learning the hardest lessons take some, some, take some of that, you know, where you just have to be reminded. And it's kind of like me and gluten right now, where every time I eat gluten, I feel like shit, I'm constipated and maybe you get like a migraine or something. And how long is it going to take for before I finally realize like, I don't want this in my life anymore. Now granted, gluten and marijuana are not the same. (laughs) But all I'm saying is that it can take a while for your subconscious mind to catch up with what your soul is wanting for you. So yeah, we're here now. I have not had any drinks since May. Um, I No, June, early June. I went on a trip with a friend of mine in New York who may be listening to this right now. Hey, Brian. Um, I'm going to encourage him to listen to this show 
just because I mentioned him. I don't know. I wanted to listen to the next episode on caffeine because he said he'll listen to it when it's out because anyway, um, caffeine was my other vice for a long time and I didn't ever drink it until, wait, I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm not going to have any spoilers on my story around caffeine until the caffeine episode, but we're on alcohol. That's the last time I drank was with him. And I am even tempted to, like, as I'm recording this, I'm recording like four episodes in one day. I'm about to go pick up my van in North Carolina tomorrow. And I was like, oh my gosh, like we should get like a bottle of champagne and celebrate. No, no, we shouldn't. Like there's nothing good that can come out of that except like a temporary feeling of glee, but it's going to be dehydrating. And that's not something I want to have when I'm going to be camping on the way home. So Yeah alcohol we're talking about alcohol today we're finally here and alcohol i mean throughout the centuries all the way up till today we have always associated someone who's had too much to drink with slurred speech i just slurred sweets slurred speech the inability to walk in a straight line the inability to think or speak clearly, and we call it being drunk. If it becomes more severe than that, and the person is like vomiting or they're incapacitated, then we might call it alcohol poisoning. But do we really know what happens when our bloodstream is saturated with a high volume of alcohol or even a low volume of alcohol? We don't, and we never did. We have assumed, because medical research and science assumed, that more alcohol in the bloodstream leads directly to these actions and symptoms, that alcohol itself affects the brain to cause these types of experiences, but here is the truth. No one really knows exactly what happens inside the brain with alcohol. Intoxication is not fully understood. It's only one aspect of what happens to the brain when someone drinks. Alcohol's effects start out with what is called getting a little tipsy. Some say that alcohol helps them loosen up and speak their mind. Some say a couple beers help them relax. Some say wine helps numb them out. Yet how... Does alcohol seem to loosen them up? How? How does it relax them? How does it numb them out? Well, we're going to talk about it. We've been chatting throughout various episodes and have mentioned, I've mentioned multiple times that our brains survive on glucose. A lack of glucose to your brain can slowly starve it over time. And if glucose were eliminated from your bloodstream, assume that it was, if it were eliminated from your bloodstream and never entered your brain, you'd actually go into brain failure within minutes. Alcohol is the all-time trick on your brain. That's because your brain believes that alcohol is sugar. Sugar it can use. And we learned this in personal training school way back in the day. It was in school for personal training for four straight months, Monday through Friday, five hours a day. We learned that alcohol has seven calories per gram and is considered or thought to be sugar by the body, but it is not. It can't use the sugar. It believes it's like the glucose that's created by the foods that you eat that contain carbs and sugar, but really alcohol is methyl sugar. It's a hybrid of what was sugar, more of like a vaporized sugar versus any sugar that would be usable. Alcohol's essence is sugar, but it's not. So that's why it's a trick. It's an ultimate trick for your brain. As a result of this charade played on your brain that leads it to identify alcohol, as critically needed glucose, several things go wrong. It's just a mess. The more alcohol in your bloodstream, the harder it is for your brain to use any real source of glucose in your bloodstream, and alcohol dominates over any glucose storage left in the brain. So your liver is your main storage 
bin for glucose. Its job, your liver's job, is to release glucose congruently as your brain needs it. There are moments when we aren't getting sugar or glucose or fructose of any kind or any kind of carbohydrate in our diet, and we go into glucose deficits in the bloodstream. And at that point, your liver's job is to release glucose so your brain doesn't starve. This includes circumstances where you aren't eating for a long period of time. Remember that without glucose, your brain cannot survive. Don't forget that. The liver is just playing its role, right? It's it's why somebody can do a water fast and their brain can survive the experience. It's because the liver is able to release glucose for the brain. Glycogen reserves in the brain and glucose reserves in the liver determine how long someone can withstand a water fast. Now, not everybody's liver functions that well. Many people's glucose storage bins are minimal due to the liver being sluggish or stagnant, and drinking alcohol can affect these people more than alcohol affects people that have strong livers. So that's why some can say, oh, I can't handle alcohol, or so-and-so can't handle his liquor. It's because their livers are weak especially as they age. Regardless of somebody's alcohol tolerance, though, when enough alcohol is consumed, the effects are all the same. As you're drinking alcohol, it actually starts to poison and numb the liver, and your liver is your defense mechanism to stop alcohol from getting to your brain. So by the time you start getting tipsy, or whatever you personally call the beginning stages of feeling alcohol's effects, I know some people just start saying they feel buzzed or whatever, Your liver is already at its saturation level for protecting the brain. When we talk about moderation with alcohol, we miss this crucial point. Alcohol is toxic in any amount, so the liver's job is to soak up every last drop it can. When your liver is being poisoned by alcohol, it can't release glucose anymore. Even if someone has a large storage bin of glucose in their liver, even then, eventually the liver becomes paralyzed by the alcohol. So we can't do that function anymore because the liver's job is of releasing the glucose is just halted. It's just brought to a complete stop. Its job then becomes soaking up the alcohol, becomes a sponge. At the same time, alcohol pushes aside any glucose that's in the bloodstream. So alcohol can become the brain's number one choice for fuel because alcohol seems like glucose, again, even though in the end it is not. Alcohol is a byproduct of glucose. It's a byproduct of sugar. It's like a waste product. It's like a ghost of what sugar was. So the brain becomes a victim of the ghost effect of alcohol. And as more alcohol enters the brain, a person will exhibit more drunken, inebriated behavior. When someone gets to the point of drunken behavior, slurred speech, inability to function normally, that means the brain is already starting to starve to death. And here's a key understanding. Most of the symptoms we associate with drunkenness and alcohol poisoning aren't only from alcohol itself. Most are symptoms of the brain starting to die. Oh, isn't that scary? Like, Talk about faint for, for the faint of heart. Like, this is not for the faint of heart. The more alcohol you consume in an evening or a day, the less glucose the brain absorbs and then fuels itself with. We think of the optimum as 100% of glucose entering the brain and keeping it alive, then drinking alcohol brings that glucose percentage down to only 5 to 10%. And it all depends on how intoxicated someone is. 
It's like taking a fish out of water, watching it gasp on the beach as it takes in oxygen instead of water, and then putting it back in the water to revive it, and then taking it back out and repeating that process. The fish will stay alive, although it pays the price for being thrust into that survival mode over and over again. And this is what happens when someone drinks alcohol regularly. Just enough glucose is getting to the brain to keep the person alive. Yet it's so little that the person loses the ability to function. You become a walking, talking example of a dying brain. Alcohol dominates over glucose getting to the brain because not only is the liver intoxicated and paralyzed and cannot release enough glucose to get to the brain, but the brain chooses alcohol over glucose. This is not because the brain needs alcohol or because alcohol is good for the brain. Again, it's because the brain is being tricked into thinking the alcohol is the most accessible, viable form of glucose. It's a ghost effect. Now, the effect of alcohol on the brain isn't solely from this trick sugar effect where the brain becomes starved of its valuable glucose. Alcohol is indeed a poison, and as a poison, it does have an effect that can be intoxicating and debilitating, yet the slurred speech when someone is on their third drink is because the brain is starting to starve from glucose, and therefore losing the ability to function. And when inebriation becomes so extreme and drastic and someone drinks so much that they collapse and fall asleep, that drunken sleep is a game of Russian roulette because if the brain doesn't get any glucose at all due to the intensity of intoxication, the brain can actually starve and that person can die in their sleep. Or due to alcohol poisoning, one aspect of inebriation that's not about lack of glucose they may need to vomit, right? Now, as the brain is dying from a lack of glucose, the nerves are not functioning optimally. The vagus nerves can become paralyzed as the brain is losing its deeper glucose reserves, meaning that as someone is vomiting in their sleep, it's easier to choke and die. That's how it happens, people. Eating enough glucose-rich food and keeping your fats low is important before a drinking night so you have ample storage bins of glucose freshly available. This is why when someone says, I'm drinking on an empty stomach, I haven't eaten today, you'll see them get buzzed faster. Showing those first effects of drinking early. We think this buzz, this tipsiness, is because the brain becomes intoxicated with alcohol. Really, an alcohol buzz is just a brain starving of glucose. The liver is starting to mop up the alcohol, so it's not releasing glucose anymore, and because someone didn't eat, they also don't have freshly available glucose in their bloodstream. For someone who did eat that day, though, it takes longer for the alcohol to affect them as they start drinking because they at least have that fresh glucose for the brain. It takes a larger volume of alcohol for intoxication to come into it. That's for the poison aspect of alcohol to play a role in someone's symptoms. Even then, drunkenness is part intoxication by alcohol and part brain starving of glucose. So it's not just intoxication by alcohol. It's your brain actually starving because it can't get the glucose that it would need to function. If drunkenness were only about intoxication of alcohol, the symptoms would be limited. Someone would be nauseous, vomiting, feeling sick in their head, dizzy, Yet, even though they're really sick, they would still be coherent. It's the starvation of the brain happening at the same time that leads to loss of motor skill function, slurred speech, and other difficulties speaking, not understanding what someone is saying, and at the same time, saying things you don't know what you're saying. As the brain is getting very little glucose on the edge of staying alive, certain parts of the brain start to shut down. 
Now, let's talk about hangovers for a second. A hangover, like drunkenness itself, is part of starvation of glucose and part of intoxication of alcohol. The worst approach for recovery is to drink again the next day. That's the worst thing that you could do. Even though that's the advice given to many people to drink, it's the worst option. It just doesn't work. It doesn't shake a hangover because, once again, you're starving the brain of glucose. Now, the reason people tend to gorge on food the day after drinking is because their brain is begging for glucose. Depending on how much alcohol someone consumed, the brain narrowly missed starving to death from lack of glucose, so now the organ sends messaging throughout the body that it needs large amounts of glucose desperately and immediately. At the same time, someone could still be nauseous from the alcohol, feeling sick to the stomach, and like they can't really hold down food yet. That queasy part of a hangover is from the toxic nature of alcohol. Many people don't drink to the point of nausea and vomiting. They're still looking to scarf down food to sober up, though. The same night that they drink, they're looking for a diner or drive through at 2 or 5 o'clock in the morning. I've been there. I've been there. Ordering, like, french fries at McDonald's on the way home from a night of drinking with my ex-husband's parents at a country bar. Stories. Stories I have. Yeah, so you might be in a diner ordering a whole stack of pancakes with syrup, toast, eggs, bacon, waffles, hash browns, burgers, fries, tacos, and burritos, all at once. Like, <laughs> Or they're turning to a bunch of food the next day, and the common phrase that people use is sopping up the alcohol. It even happens when someone is actively drinking out at a party or a bar when a companion might say, you've got to eat something to sop up that alcohol. And what no one realizes is that eating food after drinking alcohol is actually about getting glucose to the brain so that it can come out of its starving state and start to function again. Because we misunderstand what's going on in the brain and body, we're still not getting what our brain really needs because we're adding fat. Mistakenly, we reach for a combination of carbohydrates plus fat, and that fat inhibits the carbohydrates glucose from getting to the brain. For example, frying hash browns in oil, butter, and grease inhibits the potato's glucose from easily getting into the brain. Yeah, now we're getting insulin resistance and our body has to fight to divide the sugar and fat so the sugar can get to the much-needed places in the brain and other parts of the body. It's not like we're trying to recover from a drunken stupor by consuming fruit like bananas or papayas or getting our mineral salts from sources like spinach, leafy greens, celery juice, things like that. Instead, we're going to go for a plate of eggs, which is just pure fat, or we go for toast with avocado or oatmeal with nut butter. And avocado and nut butter are both fats that get in the way of glucose from the carbohydrates of the toast or oatmeal. Across the board, pizza, which is again sugar and fat together, is often the most popular go-to after a night or even a day of drinking. Yeah. So, yeah, why is starving the brain of glucose addictive? Why is alcohol addictive? Because there's an unexpected adrenaline high. <laughs> Did you know I was going to say that? It's always about the adrenaline. Anything with addiction and drugs like substance misuse, it's about the adrenaline that your body may be lacking or it would be lacking in the situation because it's wanting to rescue your brain and it feels good, right? There's an unexpected adrenaline high that comes with the brain losing its fuel source, glucose, to stay alive. The more alcohol that gets to your brain, in turn starving the brain of glucose, the more adrenaline, or epinephrine, is released. Now this adrenaline can affect each person differently. It can determine if someone is going to be an angry drunk, 
or if someone is going to be sitting down on the ground crying <laughs> or bawling when they're drunk. When when we say alcohol is talking for someone, right? That's alcohol talking. What we're really witnessing is adrenaline being used by a brain starving to death. Anytime we're in danger on any level, our adrenals send out an adrenaline blend in hopes of changing the chemistry of our bloodstream to help in any way possible. Adrenaline becomes a backup fuel when the brain has no fuel. And remember, adrenaline in itself is an addiction. The more inebriated we get and the more our brain starves of fuel, the more adrenaline is released. Now, this adrenaline surge often affects people based on what experiences they've had in their life. We each feel different emotions, for example, when adrenaline is released. Life experiences and wounds, emotional wounds, tend to peek their heads up when somebody drinks. And that's one reason why each person has a different emotional experience when they drink. Some people call alcohol relaxing. Some say it gives them a migraine. Some say it makes them sad and depressed. Some say it makes them happy. Some say it gives them strength, energy, and courage. It's all about how someone's reacting to that adrenaline surge. Some people get pumped up when they start to drink, excited, screaming, yelling, cheering at a sports event maybe, or celebrating that happy hour moment. And they call it happy hour for a reason, you know. The sensation that occurs when you're knocking back that first drink is this adrenaline surge of survival in the face of brain starvation. If we understood this, what we'd be shouting instead of cheers is my brain is about to start starving to death. <laughs> my adrenal glands are going to release a tremendous amount of epinephrine to keep my brain alive. At the same time, I'm going to feel the effects of intoxication from alcohol's poison. All in one, it's going to give me a great night. Except it wouldn't feel like such a great night after all, would it? Yeah. Yeah, so that's alcohol, people. Like, it is not good. <laughs> it's starving. It starves our brain almost immediately, and it tricks our brain. It's that ghost effect that alcohol has to make our brain choose the alcohol over the glucose. It inhibits our liver from releasing the glucose that our brain needs to survive, and it goes into the role of stopping up the alcohol because the liver does recognize that it is a poison and it needs to get it out of there, but it just turns our whole system haywire and... It has a cumulative effect. Like, I think there's a lot of issues in our society, especially like mental illness, issues that can be traced back to use of alcohol over time. But because especially when our livers are not weakened yet, you know, earlier in life, they tend to not be as weak as they are later in life. We are unable to trace back our present illness say when we're in our 60s to all the alcohol we use between our 20s and our 60s right just in that moderation that's why moderation is such a trap because even moderate amounts of alcohol like one drink a night or whatever like you're constantly throwing a wrench into the systems that are trying to perform optimally for your body at all times so you're even putting small amounts of alcohol in little by little, consistently, right? You're still putting a consistent wrench, even if it's a small wrench, it's still a wrench into the intricately turning systems gears of your body. That's how I see it. So yeah, that wraps it up for alcohol. Next episode, finally, finally is going to be caffeine. Super excited about this one. Also not for the faint of heart, especially if you're married to your coffee. 
but I think it's information that that is valuable and that people need to be making the best decisions for themselves and their health in their lives. So I hope you tune into that. Thanks for tuning in this episode and we'll see you in the next one. Thanks so much for tuning in to another episode of the Misdiagnosed Podcast. If you enjoy this episode, please subscribe and leave us a review. If you know someone else out there who'd benefit from what we share on this show, please don't hesitate to share this episode with them.